0: For almost three centuries, Sotheby's has been the place to discover the greatest stories of creativity. We've been the temporary custodians of some of the world's finest treasures, which you can see on display in our galleries on any given day. Welcome to Sotheby's Talks, the podcast that celebrates art, culture and collecting. I'm Marina Ruiz-Colomer, and I want to invite you inside the world of Sotheby's, a place where you can find the extraordinary including contemporary art, old master paintings, rare books, jewellery, and memorabilia. I am a specialist in Sotheby's contemporary department, and throughout my career, I have championed the work of female artists. In 2021, I co-organized the first cross-category sale of work by women at Sotheby's. In the last few years, we have seen the demand for work by female artists increase dramatically, but there is still work to be done. So on this podcast, we're sharing some of the conversations we've been holding with our experts, along with tastemakers, collectors, and luminaries from the world of art and culture. In this episode, which was originally recorded as a live event, we are joined by two literary icons for a conversation about the beloved 19th century novelist Jane Austen. Helen Fielding is the creator of the multi-million selling Bridget Jones novels and films. And Jill Hornby is the author of The Best-Selling Miss Austen and The Story of Jane Austen. Along with Dr. Calica Sands, a specialist from the Sotheby's Books and Manuscripts Department, Helen and Jill sat down at Sotheby's in London for a conversation about the enduring appeal and contemporary significance of Jane Austen, and the impact that she has had on their own life and work. Here's host, award-winning novelist and playwright Kate Moss, with more.
1: Well, hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Kate Moss. I'm a novelist, playwright and writer of history. Now, today, uh, we're going to be talking about Jane Austen. Who else? Jane Austen, you will probably all know, was born in 1775. She died in 1817 when she was only 41. And although there are juvenilia and there are some unfinished novels, her enormous reputation, in a way, is based on only six works of fiction, which is incredible, and she has continued to have an enormous influence on writers of all different genres ever since then. You know, there are two um, grand dames, I suppose, of literature, both sadly no longer with us. Faye Weldon, back in 1984, uh, wrote in Letters to Alice uh, that she wasn't actually a gentle writer. You should not be misled. And Hilary Mantel, in 1998, wrote an essay called Not Everybody's, Dear Jane, and talked about how she was much more subversive than sometimes she was presented. But what we're going to do today, I have contemporary, literally, lionesses, that's you two, um, who are brilliant uh, contemporary novelists who have used Jane Austen's uh, as an inspiration for their own fiction and in some ways non-fiction as well. Um, And I can't wait to hear what you're going to say. And so I have um, with me Helen Fielding who is the author of the multi-multi-million-selling series Bridget Jones' Diary, Bridget Jones' The Edge of Reason, Bridget Jones' Mad About the Boy, and Bridget Jones's Baby. There's a theme here. Um, <laughs> and she was also, of course, the co-writer of the Bridget Jones movies. And this wonderful uh, piece of information, in a survey conducted by The Guardian newspaper, Bridget Jones' Diary was named as one of the ten novels, just ten, that defined the 20th century. It's amazing, isn't it? Yes, a round of applause. <laughs> Whoa, I agree. But no less literary Lionessy is Jill Hornby, uh, who is the author of four amazing novels, including uh, the novel Miss Austin uh, which was a number one bestseller and named one of the best novels of 2020 by The Times and The Observer, and also Goddessham and Park, which was another uh, huge bestseller in 2022, and also you've written The Hive, and altogether now and a biography of uh, Jane Austen for younger readers called The Story of Jane Austen. So another round of applause for Jill, I think as well. And the final literary lioness of the panel is Kalika Sands. Uh, Kalika is the international specialist in the Books and Manuscripts department here at Sotheby's. Uh, She did her DPhil at Oxford, where her research focused on the intersections of British literature and the history of science and medicine. And during her time at Sotheby's, she's been involved in many important collections, including that of Barbara and Ira Lipman, Dorothy Tapper Goldman, and most recently, Bibliotheca Brookeram. I knew I wasn't going to be able to say that. I nearly (laughs) crossed it out. Will you say it for us, Kalika? Uh,
2: Bibliotheca Brookeriana. There we are. You see, it
3: was a hard one. Right.
1: Icebreaker question, Helen. When did you
3: fall in love with Jane Austen? Well, I think there's a distinction between when I fell in love with Jane Austen and when I fell in love with Mr. Darcy. Um, but I think I fell in love with Jane Austen when I was about 17, and a schoolgirl in Leeds, and was like horrified by what I was being asked to read, which was sort of Tristan Shandy and Gulliver's Travels and being told that it was funny. And then opened this book, and from the very first line, which we all know, I thought, this is brilliant. This is woman writer who's actually still funny and she was writing centuries ago. And it was so spunky and perceptive and funny and romantic and a woman who was full of spirits and humour and principle and not afraid to stand up to bossy men. I just thought it was great. And, And it always stayed with me as a perfectly pitched voice. That, that I wanted to kind of copy. Did you
1: imagine yourself
3: as Elizabeth Bennet? Yes, very much so. Yeah. Elizabeth Bennet and Maria from The Sound of Music, ah, who I think are very similar in many ways, as are Mr Darcy and Captain Bontrapp. But that's another story.
2: That is yeah. That would
1: be
3: a great story, actually. I'd
2: Want like to
1: mix them together. Well, it could be the literary time travelers' wives and husbands <laughs> could muddle them all up together. That's brilliant. a great idea. Yeah, we'll Hang would, on to that. You heard it here first, ladies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Jill, what about you? When did you fall in love with Jane Austen?
4: Well, I fell in love with the novels at school um, when they first came into my life. My English teacher—I was an incredibly uncivilized child—and then I got this English teacher when I was sixteen who'd done her thesis on Jane Austen and she sort of used the novels of Austen as an instrument with which to civilize me somehow anyway (laughs) it kind of half worked as an experiment but then I fell in love with her as a person when I was you know much later on about 20 years later when I read the letters and I thought oh hello you could you know I get you you could be my mate you're I mean she's I, her voice and her spirit and, and her concerns, actually, in the letters, which were all really about how annoying your mother is and whether that hat, you know, oh, my God, I look as fright in that hat, that sort of thing. I just felt... I just thought I really got on with her as a, as a person. So it was a kind of long process.
1: So what once... It, can you remember the first novel you read?
4: The first one, well... I had Northanger Abbey for O level, and that's not you know. Oh, I like mean, Northanger Abbey. I mean, like, it's a very bad read.
1: Yeah, Whatever. And then, um, <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, I'm the chair, do you? <laughs> and asking really difficult questions now. Then. then along came
4: Mansfield Park. Then, then came Sense of Sensibility, and actually, it you know then reached a peak, a climax, really, with Pride and Prejudice.
1: Very neat. Mm-hmm. And Cleeve, did did you study her at school or were you different? Education system, maybe.
2: I didn't. Um, so, Jane Austen isn't necessarily assigned in school, sometimes Pride and Prejudice is, but I happened across a paperback of Sense and Sensibility when I was about 12, I suppose. And I grew up in a house we were always encouraged to read, but I started that and I just thought, this is the most phenomenal thing I've ever read. Why isn't every book this? <laughs> and so as soon as I finished that, which I think I skipped out on a piano lesson because I just couldn't put it down. Um, so I'm sorry about that, mom. But then I had to read everything. So next was Pride and Prejudice. And I still remember where I was when we have the chapter that Mr. Darcy crosses Mr. Wickham in the street. You know, there's just a fantastic plot twist that's about to come. So yeah, I I started and then it has just remained with me for, you know, for decades now.
1: And is that they're the same kind of moment of acknowledgement in young American or Canadian or, you know, women when they come across Austen? Or were you special, as it were? You know, could you talk to friends saying, have you read
2: this yet? Absolutely. Uh, So my closest friend growing up, she lived two houses down the street. We watched the BBC Pride and Prejudice obsessively. And we would trade books back and forth. So I think that's one of the wonderful things about Austen. It just sort of... Her writing transcends ages and countries and and genders and everything. So, yes, I absolutely had a good core group of friends that I could talk to Austen about. Yeah, it's
1: it's a lovely idea. Now,
2: I mean,
1: this particular talk is about how Jane Austen changed people's lives. Helen, how did she change your... Well, we can imagine, but tell us
3: how she changed your life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she changed my life because I stole her plot. Yes! (laughs) So... (laughs) (laughs) when I started writing Bridget Jones it was just a series of anonymous columns in the independent newspaper and I didn't say it was me because I was trying to be a serious political journalist (laughs) (laughs) and I thought they were really silly and no one would read them but then they suddenly got some popularity uh, to the point where my publisher said why don't you make them into a book but there was no plot and I'm hopeless at plots and at the same moment The BBC's Pride and Prejudice, which you saw, was on the TV, and the streets were empty on Sunday nights. Yes. And everyone was going around growling, Mr. Darcy, Mr. Darcy. So I sort of morphed the columns into Pride and Prejudice and made this character, Mark Darcy, who was Mr. Darcy, ultimately Colin Firth as well, this kind of hybrid creature... (laughs) I I don't think he's ever been described as a hybrid creature. (laughs) He's a (laughs) mixture of Mr Darcy and Mark Darcy and Colin Firth. But anyway, the the columns became a book and it was entirely based plot-wise and to a degree character-wise on Pride and Prejudice. So she completely changed my life. And
1: why did you know or how did you have the instinct that it was an evergreen plot, that it would work for now? You know, 200 years and more has passed
3: Uh, since Jane Austen died well I didn't really and I don't think anyone really ever knows anything I never thought that book would become anything but actually in hindsight it is a, a pretty foolproof plot and that's why it's been adapted there's been 17 I think film TV adaptations at least and those are just the ones that are Pride and Prejudice not Pride and Prejudice, the zombie movie. Whatever it, is. it is. It's just an extremely solid plot and set of characters and you can't, you have to work quite hard to muck it up. <laughs> well, you didn't muck it up. It's absolutely
1: extraordinary. Um, Jill, changed your life. Is that true? A bit strong? What do you
4: think? She probably has a bit right there. I mean, I am come very late to this game. I didn't start writing novels till I was in my 50s, but I I was writing a column and I got the boot and I was 51 and nobody employs a 51-year-old woman, so I thought, oh, well, I'd better write a novel then. I <laughs> and I thought. then I thought, how do you do that? And because I'd written that biography of Jane Austen for children, it's quite annoying writing a short book because you have to know everything you need to know to write a long book and then choose what to leave out. And so I knew her basic principles, you know, and and that when she herself had come to write a novel had said... Three or four families in a country village is the very thing to work on, and and of course she's right about that. Like she's right about everything. It is the the most perfect basis. But for a novel, it's the basis of EastEnders. It's the basis of Con- Coronation Street. They're not country villages, but they're three or four families cheap by jowl, dependent on one another. And we all know from our own lives, you know, once people start having children and their children have children, it throws up enough drama to keep us all on the edge of our seats until we don't <laughs> know what's. you know, it's amazing, isn't it? All, all of what our friends' kids get up to and our own children get up to and so on. <laughs> So, so there was that, and then uh, 30 years ago, we bought this house, this this um, vicarage in Berkshire. And I was told that there was a Jane Austen connection to it. Um, which I kind of thought probably they all had vicarages in Berkshire because she was a vicar's daughter, and you know they go flitting around having tea, and that's what they did. But in fact, the connection was with her sister, who had been engaged to the son of the vicar, and then he died. And it was all very heartbreaking and terrible. And she, that from that moment, just sort of donned black and said, that's it, I'm a spinster. And from she, Cassandra, owning her spinsterhood, it enabled Jane to become a spinster, to embrace her own spinsterhood. And Cassandra protected her throughout Jane's life until Jane died in Cassandra's arms. And she was she was the absolute midwife of the, of the novels. And I became very Team Cassandra then when when I discovered all of that and it gave me the idea for Miss Austen about putting the case for her. So it has given me yeah. sort of
1: enormous material, enormous. Yes. fuel and nourishment, <laughs> I suppose. Enormous. But enormous. One of the things that is so interesting about the longevity of Jane Austen is do you think she is misunderstood that quite often people talk about, you know, their romance novels, but there's a lot more to oh, all of the novels, really, than that. I mean, that's kind of the architecture in some mm. respects, but it's not it's
3: not what the book is about only, is it? No. Not at all. I mean, you know, there's only a few stories. There's sort of six or ten basic stories, and the romantic plot is one of them. But what she hands on it. Is is so not lit And um, you know, she often is it's appalling, but she is sort of pushed into into that chickly bonnet female only area. But she I think she once said she was writing on a little piece of ivory or something. She tells you this small story, as you say, about a small group of people. Sociologically and politically, she's she's also telling you about the war, about the the position of women financially and their plight if they haven't got enough money to exist without being married she's so perceptive about people and even i think she was only 21 when she wrote pride and prejudice she she sets out her stall on people you know she'll say vanity was the beginning and the end of sir walter Elliot's character mr darcy was clever Mr. Collins was not a sensible man. She, she's very sort of clear and moral. She has these great comic characters. She has great comedy set pieces, which is why her books translate so well to movies. And she's really perceptive about human nature and also very kind and decent and moral. It's not a bitter voice. She She is full of warmth and a lack of pretension and and humor and sort of female solidarity there's a huge amount about female oh, friendship absolutely. in the books um, so i think they would they stand up with anything else i think she's a, a terrific she's my favorite right <laughs> yeah that's not surprising
1: one way or another <laughs> yeah i owe her yeah, big you owe her. time yeah <laughs>
4: Jill. <laughs> no, I think the romantic fiction is very much her shop window and she's got so many other things to say. I mean, the reason I write, like writing about her and Cassandra and, and is, is because I'm fascinated by the women of that time, their utter powerlessness. And Jane's novels are about the powerlessness of women, really. I think we read them all wrong. In a way, we read them from the comfort and the strength of our situation of being educated and being resourceful, and so on. But when, a, when a contemporary reader would have started *Pride and Prejudice*, they would have seen, you know, the entailed proper, property and the five daughters. That is your basic mother's nightmare you know they're reading a horror story what on mm. earth are they going to do with these five girls we think it's a lark and and the bbc Prime and prejudice faultless b- beautiful work of genius it really really undermines mrs bennett i think
2: who oh, yeah. in a way I is so probably agree. So
4: agree. jane austen's heroine it's not yeah, Lizzy yeah. bennett it's Je- it's it's mrs bennett who understands that those five girls are in serious jeopardy and, you know, so Jane and Lizzie possibly could have been governesses. Those other three, they were off on the game, if anything happened to their father. They're, they really are about to fall through the floorboards of life, as is Anne Elliot, because Walter Elliot's got rid of her. You know, and, and Fanny Price has absolutely no social capital. These, these women are in danger and they are rescued by their wits as well as by their men folk they are rescued then the men respond to what is good and great about those women and they are saved it's mrs bennett's triumph is, is actually what pride and prejudice is about and because mr bennett was played by that really twinkly actor and he's got those great lines you know some of the greatest lines in literature we all think oh mr bennett and we all think mm, she's so stupid but actually, he's terrible. He's just, you know, sitting in the library. Doesn't care about them, whether they live or die. Can't be asked to go up, the, excuse me, up the road to 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 see to see the men in the big house, and and he's just condemning them to death. So I think we don't understand that. I mean, if a for, for a woman, if you didn't get married, and if your brother or for, you know, if your brother or any relative didn't want to keep you, you had these options. You had becoming a governess. Well, not everybody was educated or, or, you know, equipped to be a governess. Then there was being companion to an elderly lady. Nightmare. Um, <laughs> and not only that, short-term occupation, because then they died. <laughs> and and then after that, it was just prostitution. And I did an event with a, a Regency historian a couple of years ago who said that in 1810 that the prostitute population of London was 800,000 you know, and the population of London wasn't that big. <laughs> um, and, and a lot of these, you know, a lot of, they were eight-year-old girls. They were just people who weren't being protected by
1: men. One of the interesting things is that it was one of those moments of uh, there not being enough men to go round anyway. It's like after the First World War... So I think it's something like only 30% of women were actually married. Mm. So there's often within both the novels and Jane's life, the idea that it was exceptional that she was unmarried and lived with her sister. But actually, that
3: was more likely than not, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, and I think that 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 has contributed to this sort of idea, which was still lingering when I started writing Bridget, that if a woman is single there's been some horrible mistake and, yeah. you know, and she is sort of, there are shelves and spinning wheels and shades of Miss Havisham hanging around <laughs> and you're going to end up dying alone and being found three weeks later half eaten by an Alsatian. Yes! And, you know, I think as, as, as Jewel has pointed out that it, you know... You said that getting married in Jane Austen's day was a bit of a death sentence because you could end well, up having was, eleven yes. children, and it was. people often died in childbirth. If you got so married at seventeen, quite...
4: then you had what twenty-three pregnancies in you. If you got married at seventeen, your husband liked you, then then um, you you could you know you were, you would be in pig for the rest of your days. And all, of all of her sisters-in-law, they all coped it in childbirth on the eighth the ninth mm. and the eleventh babies, that they died. And that was the comment it was a death sentence. So so you had you did have to think several times about whether to accept the person, in that you barely knew
3: him anyway. And especially if he was a ghastly creep like Mr Collins in <laughs> Well exactly in Prentice, in Prentice, Mr. <laughs> Collins Mr Eason. Collins and um Wickham, you know, the sort mm. of the the swagger the the um, sexy bastard that everyone falls for, you know. Yeah. They, they did have I to know. think twice. But they and, didn't
4: know them very well. They'd dance with them a few times. They'd know. be on their own when they were proposed to. And then they were carted off, you know. Um, you you went off to live where your husband lived, so their mother would become your mother and their house would be your house. It was quite It's quite a big
1: deal, really. It's a scandal. In terms of... Uh, the novels themselves and why they have this incredibly enduring appeal. And we're going to talk in a moment to Kalika about why people are, are still so passionate about Jane Austen and all of her work. It's There is just something that is... She is both utterly of her time and utterly bigger than any particular time. That's right, isn't it, in terms of the way that she writes her stories and her plots. So what is it that makes a relatively innocent but a a woman who lived quite a confined life within the south of England
3: for the most part a universal voice. I think she when she wrote she was in her absolute moment in terms of her voice and her understanding of human nature of what exactly was going on around her and where everyone fitted and what was funny about it. And I think that is what has endured alongside her perfect plotting. She wrote books that turned the pages, but it was that understanding of human nature. And that is what, I'm always very against the divide between fiction and literary fiction. You know, literary fiction can sometimes be the thing where you read the same paragraph over and over again and don't remember that you've read it. And, you know, if you go to the other end of popular fiction, it has no meaning. But she married the two, and she, she managed to make stories where you wanted to know what happened next. But it was the, the depths of understanding of human nature and human life and people and the world that elevated it above that. Because humour is one of the things that dates... Most quickly. Humor just really doesn't... I mean, even my children, the things that they look at on YouTube, they only want the 10 funniest seconds. Sometimes I, I remember making them watch things I used to think were funny, sitcoms and Monty Python, they're just not funny anymore. And, you know, a lot of old comic novels don't stand the test of time, but she does. And that's, that's kind of magical. They're yeah. good jokes. yeah. Jill, you've used the real life,
1: as it were, as your inspiration. Um, is that because you felt that it was important to put the woman more visibly centre stage, as opposed to the adaptations and the you know the, the we're, we're never watching Jane when we're watching a Pride and Prejudice or an Emma or a Sense and Sensibility, but there is always somehow the idea that she's lurking in the background. Yes, I, I mean, my degree
4: was in history rather than English, and I do remember sort of getting to the end of the three years and thinking, goodness me, they were all men. You know, that that entire three years was about what men had done and what men had said and what men had... And I had this enormous interest in women's lives, which have been largely unrecorded, and so we know so little about them. And what I love about the novels in as is what a social record they are of, of what women's lives were like. And we don't have fantastic diaries of, of women in the nineteenth century. They didn't have time to write them, that's why. And anyway, nobody would have treasured them in the way, you know, and brought them down to us through the generations, the way they have their grandfathers. And so those novels are a fantastic, I think, original source mm. on what it was like to be a woman, a domestic woman, a certain sort of comfort, of a certain class in a certain area, and so writing about her gives me that that sort of canvas to to explore that, and then to honour the style of her, and so on. But their stories, I find, they are the most extraordinary family. You know, this Mister Austin. Was, was just a vicar in, in Hampshire, but he was extraordinary. He was an orphan and and a genius. I mean, he had no money at all. And then he got to, he went to Oxford and was the greatest classicist of his generation. And then he married this woman and, and they went off to this parish in Steventon and they had eight children and they were amazing. They were amazing children. Um, and... Nobody even knew that Jane was was the best of them. You know, certainly the eldest son, who thought he was the literary top dog in that sort, mm. he thought he was the big... Ne- but there were two admirals, you know, one fought at Trafalgar. They, they, they were a really astonishing bunch. And then, not Jane and Cassandra, but all the brothers went on to have thousands of nieces and nephews. If you like a family saga, which I do, you know, something like the Caslick Chronicles, something like that, the best thing ever... Then the Austins are marvellous because um, it's all there. It's absolutely all there. What
1: the the human comedy and and drama and tragedy. Do, do you wish that her sister had loved her less and thought of the future more and hadn't burnt so many of the letters?
4: No, because everything would be different. If we thought that, you know, if so, Cassandra. Cassandra outlived Jane and before her own death sat down with the thousands and thousands of letters they'd exchanged and burnt all of Cassandra's to Jane and then burnt all but 160 of Jane's to Cassandra and the biographers loathe her for that because of all of the gaps it's left in her history. But, you know, she was not... Jane, Jane was not a person who would have liked to... Her diaries to be discovered and serialized in the Daily Mail. That really wasn't. She was an absolute. It's so interesting to encounter her in this awful world that we live in where people want to be famous for nothing, you know, for just going on telly in a bikini for six weeks, and that makes them famous. And that's just. And Jane was writing the greatest novels in the English language, and she didn't want anybody to know. There was this woman in the village called Miss Ben, poor Miss Ben, she was always called who was blind, so they had to take it in turns to go and read her. And in 1815, when it was the sort of Bridget Jones of the summer, Miss Ben said she wanted this read to her, Pride and Prejudice, and she actually had the author of Pride and Prejudice reading it to her <laughs> and saying... Phew! Ditches, you know, I don't think that bit's very far. it's all very overrated That's something. thing, and she kept it buttoned because she did. She wouldn't tell her soul and says nephews didn't know she, she'd she written it, so it wasn't until after she died that anybody knew that that timid little woman in Hampshire mm. was the person mm. who did yeah, it's so it's completely in keeping for us not to know how infuriated she was by her sister-in-law Mary or how depressed she was that she wanted to die, you know that's really not what
1: complete separation of the work yes, and the person yes. I mean it, it, it's none of our business I mean it's one of the things I mean it, it's not unusual um at that time that books appeared without the author's name on on the frontispiece anyway so four of the novels were published without a name on them although as after Sense and Sensibility which had been successful it had uh, by the author of Sense and Sensibility and then Northanger Abbey I, I believe and uh a persuasion that was, was published posthumously. Yes, yes, they
2: were published together.
1: Yeah, as a as, as set. Mm-hmm. So Kalika, um, as an expert here, um, and a Jane Austen lover as well, her reputation during her lifetime, as Jill and Helen have been saying, nobody really knew her, and the books weren't successful, and she was quite frustrated mm-hmm. by that. So what happened to make her go from being, you know, that? the lady sitting in Hampshire scribbling way to being a a superstar.
2: It's sort of a a rocky journey, I suppose, in some ways that has some ups and downs. So as you say, during her lifetime, there were relatively few reviews of her novels. They weren't unfavorable, but she wasn't wildly successful like her male peers. And then about 50 years after her death, there was a biography written of her um, by a, a nephew and that sort of helped bump her popularity up again. So there was interest towards the end of the Victorian period. It wasn't really until about 1920 that there was a new critical edition of Jane Austen. And that was the first time that there was this real scholarly attention. So it's not that she was ever completely off the scene as it were, but then certainly by the 1950s or so, there was a lot more critical attention that was paid, a lot more scholarly attention and people were writing theses on, on Austen. And then certainly in the 90s, I think the BBC Pride and Prejudice did not hurt. I think the <laughs> that Emma shirt. Thompson's, yes, that shirt. The wet shirt, the wet uh, shirt, the wet shirt. That's I think that. that in conjunction with Emma Thompson's Sense and Sensibility, suddenly Jane Austen was on bestseller lists again and just had this incredible resurgence of popularity. And I think in a, a sort of scholarly capacity, now people are doing much more work trying to sort of figure out what Jane Austen was reading, what performances was she seeing, and how does this kind of intertextual life of hers work as well. And in conjunction with that, the demand for her books has also skyrocketed.
1: And do all of you, do you, as time goes on, do you all feel that her enduring appeal will just continue? That regardless of what literary movements are out there, what people are doing in the world, and all of the rest of it, that there will still be some corner of all of our hearts that will always belong
3: to Jane austen and i think it's quite interesting because you actually don't really know and i think it, it's interesting the number of writers that didn't know how successful their work was going to be like it's a really brilliant book called hemingway on writing little bits of his letters and he's always writing to Scott Fitzgerald to try and cheer him up about how meaning the <laughs> reviewers were. And no one liked his books and everyone thought The Great Gatsby it was rubbish and Tender in the Night was rubbish and, and then look what happened. There's, they're still so huge but there is a sort of zeitgeisty thing. There is something you can't quite put your finger on. Maybe it was something to do with what has been going on with women at the moment. Maybe it's that. Maybe the next century...
4: It won't be that. Mm. But Austin is like Agatha Christie's is, is the same in that their works are perfectly tailored to movies and TV. And that's why really that she is going, she has had this enormous burst in the last 50 years and could go on forever because
1: in fact they're just perfect films. And they're it, perfect TV it, It's films. also, so, uh, this is, I'm about to use a word that I really, really dislike, but it's... We'll forgive you. Yeah, I, thank you. Um, it? It's... That terrible word, relatable. Mm. But is there an element of the fact that these are stories that anybody could be in? Yes, You know, they're, it, they're not set on a spaceship or going into battle or, you know, they are
4: everybody. Well, that's what her great bitterness in her life was she had the great misfortune to be writing at the same time as Walter Scott, who couldn't, you know, they weren't wheelbarrows big enough for as much money as he was bringing home every <laughs> afternoon. He was so popular, it was ridiculous. But he himself said when he reviewed Emma, he said, I can do the big bow wow as well as anyone but she is the one who does the little piece of ivory thing. And it's the big bow wow that doesn't last, in fact. And it's stories about God, your mother's annoying, and the next door neighbour's really <laughs> nosy. And I really fancy that bloke up the road. That is the universality of her. And it is the actually tiny, tininess of her universe that makes her
1: so enduring. Yeah, wonderful. Um, we have come to the end, I'm afraid but it has been a complete joy uh, to listen to you all and to hear your different views. Could you please join me in giving a huge round of applause for Helen Fielding, for Jill Hornby, and for Kalika Sands.
0: This was Sotheby's Talk Season 1. Thank you for joining us. To step further into the world of Sotheby's, you can visit any of our galleries around the world. They're open to the public, For more information, visit Sotheby's.com. And don't forget to follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Season one, which features conversations with guests, including Marina Bramovic, Mary McCartney, Tracy Emin, Paloma Picasso, and Julianne Moore, is now live.